Father, thank you for this beautiful day, uh, for the opportunity to gather together, uh, to rest in you and to enjoy fellowship with you and with one another. Uh, strengthen our love for you and for one another in this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we began last week on chapter 25 of the Confession of Faith, which is of the church. And we really noted uh, the first two sections, which is the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. And this distinction is an important one to make. It was made at the Reformation. Up until the Reformation, the there was one vision of the church, uh, and that was the Roman Catholic Church. And so if you were baptized, if you took communion, all of these things, you were a member of the church. And so for someone to be kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church was to be sentenced to hell. Uh, there was no distinction between the visible and invisible church. So the Reformation is trying to bring everything back very carefully to the scriptures. And to and that's basically what theology is, is trying to take different different levels of emphasis in, in the scriptures. So for instance, there is one church. Uh we all acknowledge that you you know those who are united to Jesus Christ are members of his bride, the church. Uh, so there is one church, and yet at the same time, Jesus says things like, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. So Rome says that's because you can lose that grace, uh, that, that saving grace. You're, you're given grace. Grace is infused in you at baptism. Uh, you partake of grace in the sacrament uh, of the quote-unquote mass, what we would call the Lord's Supper. Uh, you, you take grace into yourself. Uh, you participate in grace in the confessional. You take grace into yourself in penance uh, and, and all of these things. So, so the grace... Uh, that gets you into heaven is something that is mediated through the church. Uh, and, and so the Reformation says clearly there are passages which say that not every member of the church is savingly united to Christ. Again, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. So how can we, on the one hand, affirm what Jesus says when he says, of all the Father gives to me, I will not lose any, and I will preserve them until the last day, while at the same time acknowledging that there are people who are united to the church, they're members of the church, and they have no hope of eternal life. And so what the confession does, what reformed theology, I should say, that this is not unique to Westminster, but what Reformed theology comes up with is this distinction between the visible and the invisible church. The visible church is made up of all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. The invisible church 
is made up of all those who are united to Jesus Christ. And so they make a distinction between profession and union. The fact that you walk the walk or walk the aisle, the fact that you said the sinner's prayer, that's not the basis of your standing with Jesus Christ. Uh, and and so this this basis of standing with Jesus Christ is that receiving him and living in him and being united to him and knowing that he who has begun a good work will continue it. Uh, the, the idea of the carnal Christian is something that came up uh, primarily in the mid-1900s, early to mid-1900s. Uh, the idea, and, and one of the famous examples, uh, I'll actually be referencing Billy Sunday uh, in, the, in the sermon this morning, but Billy Sunday was the early 1900s version of Billy Graham. Uh, he was he was a uh, very very well known very popular evangelist, and supposedly Billy Sunday uh, spoke at a evangelistic crusade, and the great Chicago mobster, uh, whose name I just dropped, Capone Al Capone, thank you, Al Capone supposedly came and walked the sawdust trail, and and made a profession of faith. And so the response was, okay, you got to stop being a gangster. And Al Capone said, no, I'm just going to be a Christian gangster. Uh, you know, he was fine with being a carnal Christian. He walked the sawdust trail. He had made the profession of faith. He had no interest in living a life that was conformed to Jesus Christ at all. Uh, now, whether that story is apocryphal or not, I have no idea. But, but it's... Uh, why we make this distinction between the visible and the invisible church is, is trying to take these various scriptural truths that are presented and trying to reconcile them into one, uh, one uh, non-contradictory uh, whole. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The fact that you are in the Reformed Church means nothing. Uh, there, there are many who have been baptized and members of a solid Bible-believing Presbyterian church who are on their way to hell. Uh, as with, and there are people in other denominations uh, who are I'm going to be fellowshipping with around the throne of grace for eternity. Uh, so, yeah, it's not the church by any stretch. That's what the Reformed faith is saying. That's what they're doing in putting this forth. It's saying it's not the church that saves you. It's not your membership. I'm not condemning either one of them. I'm just saying they were two great evangelists. No, no. Uh, the, the Billy Sunday was an evangelist in the early 1900s, and the whole point of bringing that up is his supposed conversion of Al Capone, uh, where Al Capone was saying, I didn't want to walk the walk. Uh, but no, I mean, I'm thankful that they preached the gospel. And And that's what Jesus Christ says in the parable of the wheat and the tares is let them grow together, and at the end of the day, he'll take care of it. <laughs> um, 
So before we move on to section three, I want to just touch on that last sentence there in section two. Uh, so I'll just read section two. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God. And so this is the clause, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And that one gets people, especially today, uh, riled up. Uh, the idea that my testimony of saving faith in Jesus Christ is linked to my membership in the visible church uh, is, is something. And in all honesty, I don't know, like when I say today, I don't know if this is so much the young people, if this is a current issue uh, today, but I do know like back in the 1980s, the 1990s, there was an, a huge movement of parachurch Christians, of people who uh, would say that, you know, I'm, I'm a faithful Christian, I just have got no time for the church, they're all a bunch of hypocrites, or, or they're all sectarian, and so I'm just a follower of Jesus, and uh, it kind of degenerates from there into I can worship Jesus sitting at the lake uh, just as easily as I can worship Jesus sitting in the church, uh, maybe even better, uh, because sitting in the church, I've got all this stuff cluttering up. Uh, sitting at the lake, it's just me and Jesus, and we're communing in nature, and maybe I've got my Bible with me, uh, but, but that's all of the religious experience that I need. The confession, and so again, this is where the confession is, is trying to be biblical. Rome says outside the church... There is no salvation. And over against the other extreme, we'll just call it individualism, they say the church has got absolutely nothing to do with salvation. And Westminster recognizes that these principles that are given to us in Scripture, first off, you start in the Old Testament. In order to be united to Jehovah God, you had to become an Israelite. Uh, and specifically, you had to be circumcised, and you had to keep the laws. Uh, so you've got Ruth, uh, who is a Moabite woman, and she comes into uh, also the... Uh, the, the prostitute that let the spies down. Rahab, thank you. Somebody actually said that before. I, <laughs> uh, Rahab uh, is another example. In order to be a follower of Jehovah God, you must become an Israelite. Uh, the Isra Israel is, the confession has, has said already, the church under age. Uh, it's, it's God's people those who are united to God, those who make a profession of being God's people, in the Old Testament, you specifically had to become an Israelite. In the New Testament, that becomes the big controversy. Uh, in, in the New Testament churches, uh, because for the last thousand-some-odd years, 
in order to follow Jehovah God, you have to become an Israelite. Jesus Christ is the Israelite Messiah. Uh, he, he is the, the savior of the Jews, uh, the, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So does the Gentile need to become Jewish? And that becomes the big controversy. They really have a debate over this. They really pull people in uh, from from all over the area at that time. And they really have this, this church council uh, that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. And in Acts chapter 15, the resolution is, no, you do not have to become an Israelite. This is a new dispensation. This is a new opening of the church. It's a new opening of God's grace uh, to others. So this idea of being united to the people, to the community of God, comes from all the way back with Abraham and, and continues forward. And in the New Testament, you've got verses like in Hebrews uh, to submit to the church leadership that God has placed over you so that they may care for your souls with joy uh, knowing that God is going to require of them uh, how they have cared for you. So membership entails a church <laughs> to be a member of. Uh, I, I have yet to meet the person who camps out by the lake on a Sunday morning who takes church discipline very seriously. Uh, when, when it's j- just the me and Jesus movement, uh, than somebody stepping in and correcting you. As a, as a, looking at the time, as an aside, <laughs> uh, I don't know how many of you guys have, uh, heard people calling themselves apostles. Uh, and, and it's a very, very common thing, uh, obviously outside of, of reformed, uh, churches. But but it's very common for someone to call themselves apostle so-and-so. And it used to be that they would make a point of saying that Jesus appeared to them in a vision, and so they're connecting their claim to be an apostle with Paul's experience, and that's why they are an apostle, uh, and that sort of thing. And it struck me the other day as I was kind of thinking through this and preparing for this, that the, the appeal to being an apostle, is I've got no higher authority. My only higher authority is Jesus Christ. If you're an apostle, uh, none of you lower people uh, are going to be telling me what is right and what is wrong. And if the Holy Spirit convinces me that I can have multiple wives and you step in and say, uh, no, you can't, uh, the Bible says that for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and join together to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Uh, then I just say, I'm an apostle. Who are you? Uh, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. Uh, I, I've, I've received this new revelation. So, so the whole idea of authority, especially in the American context, uh, but I don't know, I'd say it's probably common to humanity, but, but the whole idea of authority is something that, that just gets under our skin. As a further aside, I think you can understand a lot of what's going on in our culture today, specifically cancel culture, as a rejection of authority. Uh, the very institutions that are authoritative, uh, law enforcement, 
uh, our, our you know, political forefathers, the ones who, who founded uh, the country. They, all of these, these people that are placed in front of us as role models and as authority figures uh, are the ones who are being canceled out uh, and, and that we have to get rid of. So there is something in us that just really bridles at the idea of someone else telling me what to do, someone else calling me out. Uh, and, and so that, that sense of the church uh, is something that uh, is, is very central uh, in, in the scriptures, and it's central in this development of Reformed theology. So you've got Rome saying outside the church there is no salvation, full stop. So, does Westminster say that? What does Westminster qualify that with? No, ordinary. ordinary. There is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So, can you think of an example where we know for sure that someone was not united to the church and is today in heaven? The thief on the cross. Uh, and that's a perfect example of, do what? Right, so deathbed conversions are, are one of those examples. So I like, I think it was Charles Spurgeon, uh, I, I forget who said this, I think Spurgeon, uh, who said, God gives us the thief on the cross to tell us both that deathbed conversions happen and that deathbed conversions are rare. <laughs> uh, and, and so we do have this, this unique situation in Scripture where we've got someone that we absolutely know was not a member of the visible church, uh, who Jesus Christ says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, and so Westminster qualifies by saying no ordinary possibility of salvation. So in other words... Me living my ordinary life as a Christian uh, means I need to be united to the church. And I want to, I want to specifically speak to the issue of the, those who would say that church membership is irrelevant to my standing with Christ. Make the case if you want, argue it from scripture if you want, but let's both be in agreement that from the year 250 to roughly 1650 when this is written, and then on to today, this is, what's the math there, 1,800 years of normal, plain, vanilla Christian teaching. The fact that it may be controversial today speaks more about our culture today. Uh, Cyprian, in 250, was the, the uh, archbishop, I think, of Carthage. Uh, and, and Cyprian was the first one to say, you cannot have God as your father if you do not have the church as your mother. Uh, Augustine picks that up. He, he says, he, he quotes Cyprian uh, in in his writings, uh, so, so this is, this is mainstream Christian understanding 
of the individual's relationship to the church. Now, Cyprian and Augustine, I think, maybe leaned a little heavily on the church authority as opposed to the scripture's authority. Uh, but still, this, on, this, on this issue of the church uh, and the Christian's relationship to the church, this is, this is plain, middle-of-the-road Christian teaching uh, for 1,800 some odd years. Uh, so. That's right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, so that's a good. You know, the church means the called out ones. If you genuinely are called out, you're going to want to be around other Christians. All of the stuff in the New Testament about fellowship. All of the stuff in the New Testament about uh, challenging one another. You think of Ephesians uh, chapter 3, I think, chapter 4, uh, that when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men uh, for the, the building up of the church so that together we may attain unto that uh, image of Jesus Christ, that high calling of Jesus Christ. All of these things, fellowship is understood. <laughs> Uh, through, throughout the scriptures, uh, and particularly in the new, well, old and new. Uh, so we've got just a couple of minutes. Uh, so let me, let me begin at least with section three. Uh, unto this Catholic visible church, Christ has given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world, and does by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. So unto the church, and again, I um, I think this, we, we, we've drifted off of this position. Uh, I don't think we consciously abandoned it, I think we just didn't consciously hold ourselves to it. But but to the church, God has given the oracles. So what does Westminster mean when it says oracles? The scriptures. The scriptures are the oracles of God. It's specifically quoting uh, Romans chapter 3 uh, in there. He's given the ministry, and he's given the ordinances. And ordinances are another way of saying the means of grace, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper. He's given that to the church, and he's given it for the building up of the saints, for the gathering of the saints, for the building up of the saints, and he makes them effectual to that end. And now, one of the reasons that I say we, we veered off of this a little bit. Um, how many of you are familiar with the King James only position? Or you're aware of people that hold to the King James only? Now, there are two groups of people that are King James only people. There's one group who says... If the King James was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. 
it, it's just kind of this, you know, as soon as we left the King James, we all went into liberalism and all that sort of stuff. All right, so let's take that group and set them aside. But there is another group <laughs> that I think has a more compelling argument uh, for the use of the King James Version. And that group of people typically will not refer to it as the King James Version. They will refer to it as the authorized version. And so if you'll look at the opening flyleaf of a King James Bible, it itself calls itself the authorized version. It is authorized by the Church of England. It's the Church of England that set up this translation committee. The church was the one that authorized this translation of the Bible into the common language. It's the last authorized version that has ever been published. No church since has published a new translation of uh, the, the Bible. It has particularly in the 1900s, uh, been taken over by publishing houses. And so a, you know, a group like, uh, Zondervan will, will decide there's a market for a new translation of the Bible. We can make it more accessible. Here's our translation philosophy. And they pull together a bunch of Old Testament scholars, a bunch of New Testament scholars, and they all contribute to produce this, uh, translation that is going to be more accessible to the modern ear. Now, the inherent problem in that is what truly is driving Zondervan? Money. Money. <laughs> you can have all the noble intentions you want, but you got to pay your staff at the end of the day. And so once you incorporate that profit motive, then if the culture starts saying, listen, the word propitiation is offensive and nobody knows what it means, then we'll just change it to atonement, uh, which those two things are not the same thing at all. Uh, atonement and propitiation are completely uh, different terminology or different meanings, and yet that's one of the editorial adjustments that, that has been made. And then more recently, making the Bible gender neutral. And, and making the argument that, you know, anthropos can mean either male or female, and so we'll just put human uh, in wherever it says anthropos, despite the fact that there are very clear pointers in, you know, the anthropos must be the husband of one wife. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, so, so there, there are some pretty clear markers in there, but the profit motive kind of tends to, to spiral downhill on this. So, so we'll come back and touch on this, Lord willing, next week. Um, what it means that the scriptures are particularly given to the church, that the ministry of reconciliation is particularly given to the church. This gets into church discipline. Uh, what it means that the ordinances are particularly given to the church. Uh, all I will say, other than my comment about scripture translations, uh, is that I remember some years ago, uh, I got, uh, the Christian book distributor, uh, catalog. So that was, that was my, that was my Christian version of the Christmas catalog that kids love. 
CBD would come out, and I'd be scanning, you know, oh, wow, Calvin's entire commentaries for $99. Uh, I got all excited about that. And one of the things that they would regularly have is home Lord's Supper kits uh, so that you can buy your own Lord's Supper kit so that you and your family can sit around and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Uh, now, not only do I have a problem with that, but I have a problem with it being a thimble full of grape juice and a little teeny tiny wafer. Uh, <laughs> but, but that aside, uh, there, there is a, been, there has been a strong movement particularly in the 1900s in the United States, away from the centrality of the church in the oracles, the ministry, and the ordinances. Uh, So we'll come back next week, Lord willing, and uh, touch on that. With that, I will close. I think I've pretty much hit the time. Uh, Any other thoughts, questions, comments? All right. If not, let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you have given a bride to your son. She is glorious and she is beautiful. She may not look that way often to us. She may look helpless. She may look tattered and dirty. But, oh, Lord, you see her glorious. And, uh, Father, give us that vision that you have and help us as members of that bride to pursue holiness, uh, with all that we have in Christ's name.